So I'd like to begin tonight with a story told by a man who studied with the biologist Louis Agassiz. He's told the story of how it was when somebody went to study as a student with Agassiz. When the initial interview was at an end, Agassiz would ask the student when they would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long, dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen, personally selected by the master. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. He was to look at the fish, the student was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Scudder, one of the students, described the experience as one of the most memorable turning points of his life. In 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, from beneath, from above, just as ghastly. I was in despair. He had told me I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. He was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. But he said, now I set myself to my task with a new will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon actually passed quickly and towards its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not. But now I see how little I saw before. The day following, still with the fish, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced <laughs> to Agassiz, has symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked then what he might do next, and Agassiz replied, look at your fish. In Scudder's case, this lesson lasted a full four days. Look, 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 look at the fish, was the repeated injunction, and the best lesson he ever had, Scudder recalled. A legacy of inestimable value with which he could not be parted. So I thought of that story this morning when... Um, 
Barbara or Alice, we're talking about finishing your painting and that sense of, I've seen everything there is to know here. There's nothing more to be seen. There's nothing more to be known. There's nothing more that could appear. And don't we also sometimes feel that way very much when we're asked to look at the breath? Come back to the breath, we say. Do you notice how so many of you have been on meditation retreats before? We, do we ever start with anything but the breath? And often we don't move on very quickly from the breath. It's not like, oh, do a few minutes of the breath and then you know, move quickly on to more interesting things. No, we stay with the breath. We ask you to come back to the breathing over and over and over again. And this is so uh, different from the way our attention is trained in our culture. You know, in our culture, we're trained to have like this, you know, attention span of a, of a flea, moving quickly from one thing to another. And especially now with the new technologies, we have, we're trained in quite the opposite way. So this is quite a revolutionary um, invitation to keep looking at the same object over and over and over again, especially when that object is not one that we would just run to, you know, with excitement in our heart, wow, I get to look at the breath, or wow, I get to look at the fish, or wow, I get to look at my painting some more. (laughs) So we are being uh, trained, this is called a training, because we discover something from this. It's not just an exercise in um, regimentation or boredom. We get to see that the more we look, the more we actually see, and the more interesting it actually gets. I know I used to find walking meditation. When I first started this practice and was told about walking meditation, I thought this was like, gotta be the most boring thing ever, you know? walking back and forth. Well, I do that all the time. And what I found over time was that it became extremely interesting and very pleasurable. And I loved walking. I still love walking to this day. So it is this teaching that the more we look, the more we cultivate this capacity to be present, the more there is to see and the more there is to uh, open to. So we are training ourselves to see in, in, a, in a kind of special way, not in an ordinary, distracted way, but in a very refined and focused and um, continuous way to look at the same thing over and over again. We do this so that when we look internally in our meditation, when we turn this attention inwardly, we begin to notice things that perhaps we hadn't noticed before. And often this is very much the first stage in meditation. We we look in and often it's a bit alarming what we find. The new meditators may recognize this. You know, you're told to follow your breath and how long does it take before you're off doing something else? You're off into thoughts about the past or what's for lunch or 
I wonder why we're doing this, or just all kinds of thoughts will come along and take you away from your breath. You may have a PhD in physics, and somebody says, follow your breath, and before you know it, you can't do it. So when we look inside, we notice things that we hadn't noticed before, and sometimes we can get discouraged because it seems so, uh, like bad news. Gee, I didn't know I was so restless or impatient or distracted or so greedy or so hateful. I'm really a bad person sitting here. Why am I sitting here when I'm sitting here with all these horrible thoughts? You know, we get very alarmed sometimes when we look inside. This also occurs in the painting practice, does it not? We get very alarmed at what we see in our reactivity to our painting. I mean, just paper, paints, little brushes that children use. And we're getting all excited and reactive and I like this, I don't, you know, have you noticed what goes on in front of a white piece of paper? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, most of this has a theme to it. All of this reactivity, we could say, has a theme, and it is a central theme in practice. And the theme is this. The theme, if we look under all of the content, is we want things to be different than they are. Right now, as you're sitting, check in with yourself. Is everything just perfect here? Or is there something you'd like to be different? Come on, be honest. Would you like a little more coolness, maybe? Or a little more, the body isn't quite right? Or you'd like your thoughts to be a little more entertaining? Or maybe you'd like the talk to be about something else? Or Just check in. What do we want to be different right now? This is what we're up against, this mind. As I said before, Spirit Rock is pretty good, as meditation centers go. Even here we can find all kinds of things. We'd rather be different. And they change constantly from hour to hour. Now, underneath this wanting is a kind of delusion. It's sort of the fundamental delusion of human life. That if things were different in the way that we specify, <laughs> we have our list of things that we have, we can specify how we want it to be different. And if we could satisfy this and be in complete control of it, then we would be happy. That's what we're after, happiness, peace, ease, satisfaction. We think we know that if things were different, we would be happy. So what does life give us? Does it provide everything we want? Hardly ever. So it's an interesting and challenging moment in life when what we are given perhaps is something we don't want. We don't like it. We want it to go away, and it's not going away. That's an interesting and challenging moment in life. Another interesting and challenging moment is when we realize we are not going to get something we want. 
Does anybody recognize these moments, or am I the only one? <laughs> am I the only one here who's come up against these moments? I don't think so. We have all come up against these moments in one way or another. So then we assume, gee, I'm never going to get what I want. I'm, I'm going to be stuck here with what I don't want. I've lost all my chances for happiness. Is that true? I cannot be happy if I'm not achieving these goals. So this is sort of a fundamental theme of practice. A wise woman was once asked about this. This is the fundamental discontent of our lives, this wanting it to be different. She was asked, what is the way to respond to difficulty and discontent in our lives? She answered, there are those who will meet pain and discontent as they would an enemy. Some will rage at the world. They will find someone to blame, thinking only in terms of fault. There are those who will bewail their fate, saying, what have I done to deserve this? Why does sorrow always happen to me? There are those who will blame themselves, saying, well, I am such a worthless person, it's no wonder that I suffer. And then there are also those who will meet pain and discontent not as an enemy, but as a teacher. In the face of suffering, they will follow the path of the wise, asking what lies at the roots of this discontent and what is the means to its end. It's a very big question to ask what lies at the roots of our discontent. Looking inward for the answer. The Buddha described the roots of our discontent as what he called the three poisons of our minds. The human mind contains within it three fundamental forces which are very strong, very pervasive, and which are called poisons because they keep us in a state of constant discontent. What are they? Greed, the force of greed, the force of hatred, and the force of delusion. Now, in the human realm, this is what we got to work with. This is what we come in with. And it is said in the Buddhist um, sort of cosmology that we are each more predominantly one sort of type. We are each more predominantly one of them. Perhaps some of us are what are called greed types. Some of us are what are called aversive types. And some of us are called deluded or confused types. Or bewildered is another word sometimes used. Now we all have all of them, but let's just take a look at what these three types might uh, act like and behave like. Say the three types all come into the same party. It's a wonderful party going on. The greed type walks in the door and immediately 
she or he sees what they want. They see everything in the room that is attractive to them, that they feel very drawn to, they're interested in. They feel, oh, I want some of that, and I want to talk to those people, and I'm, oh, this is just so great, I'm so happy to be here, and look, I'm getting everything I want, and that kind of an attitude. The aversive type walks in the door and immediately scans the room and sees everything that is wrong sees everything that it wants to avoid, sees everything that is not quite right. Why did they have to choose that color? I mean, couldn't they? Or, you know, oh God, there's that person. Don't let me talk to that person. There's an immediate sort of reactive tendency in whatever situation. The deluded type walks in the door and kind of sort of walks around, you know, not sort of knowing what's going on. You know, kind of like, well, um, gee, I don't know what I want. Maybe uh, I'll let, well, I don't know. Let's just, I don't know. (laughs) So this is sort of the basic mindset of these three types of people. And we can see this in ourselves, in moments, in, in the ways we hold ourselves in the world and in, in, our, in our sort of ways we typically react to things. And it's not to judge ourselves, because we all have all of these qualities, but it's a, it's a form of self-knowledge. It's beginning to become familiar with these tendencies in ourselves so that we're not so driven by them. We're not so lost in them. We're not so caught by these forces because they all act as a kind of blinder, keeping us from seeing reality, keeping us from connecting with what is true. The greed is driven compulsively by always wanting more, never satisfied. It is the ground of addictions, that compulsive search for the thing that is going to keep one safe or uh, satisfied, thinking that we need it in order to survive. There's a real compulsive driven quality to the kind of greed I'm talking about. And we see it in our world. We see it on the news every night. We see it in all the corporate goings-on, you know, the global politics, the greed of always not having enough, of always wanting more, of never being satisfied. So it's important to see it because it's, it's how we wake up when we recognize it. The uh, force of hatred in the world is also very, very strong. It has the attitude that All would be well if we can just get rid of what we don't like, of what is considered somehow wrong or bad or evil. In its extreme form, it expresses itself in violence, in war, in terrorism, in racism, in genocide, in putting huge numbers of people away in prison. 
huge industry based on the belief that if we can get rid of what is wrong, we will be safe and happy. And we can read that in the news and we can see it in ourselves. We come into the hall, those of us who are aversive, and we can see, you know, well, I could meditate if the person next to me weren't moving or twitching or snoring or breathing. (laughs) The judgments we have about ourselves the judgments we have about others are all forms of this aversive tendency of mind, the critical, nagging voice inside of us. The force of delusion, which we all carry, this kind of basic confusion about what we are doing here and who we are and what is this life about anyway. Kind of sleepwalking through the world, disconnected from present reality, or living in fantasy. That's what delusion does a lot is spin out. It just goes out into outer space and spaces out. It doesn't connect with what is here and now in the immediate present. We can see this in the world as well, the force of delusion. It's it's rather amazing to see in the you know the misinformation that some of our leaders seem to be completely involved with it's quite discouraging <laughs> at times to see how uh, out of touch people can get there's a cartoon um, I, I cut out from the New Yorker magazine called uh, the, the it's three chickens and they are uh, standing in a field with a lovely pastoral landscape around them and the barn is in the background and they're having a little conversation and the headline for this cartoon is the delusional world of the free-range chicken <laughs> one is saying oh boy this is the life isn't it The other says, you said it, sister. I'm going to explore this big, wide world out here and have a ball. And the third is saying, ain't no stopping us now. (laughs) And we're all kind of like those chickens, you know? It may be great right now, but we don't realize what's coming. And we feel better about buying the free-range chicken. (laughs) Here's another little story about a Zen student who uh, had a master. This was in Japan. He studied with a very learned master named Soyen Shaku. And the master had heard the student was a woodcarver, so he asked him, how long have you been studying art? The student replied, six years. So the master said, carve me a Buddha. The student returned a couple of weeks later with a wooden statue of the Buddha. What's this? exclaimed Shaku and threw it out the window into a pond. It seemed unkind, the student would later explain, but it was not. It was a teaching. He'd meant for me to carve the Buddha in myself. 
we always think it's out there. This practice asks us to look here. So we can see these forces in the world, and we can see them in ourselves, and we can see the consequences of believing what they tell us, these voices, and of acting on them. We need to see this. This is important for us to see. Do we believe the voice of greed? Have we identified the voice of greed inside? The voice that says, I must, I need, I want, I have to have, I really need this. The compulsion of it. The voice of aversion. All that we say no to. Anything. No, no, not that. Anything but that. I can't stand another minute of this. Or the voice of delusion. You know, I'm just wondering if it wouldn't be good if all the people at Spirit Rock wore little caps. Wouldn't that be sweet? Well, you know. Hello? So we can just begin to notice these voices in ourselves instead of buying into them, taking them to be so... as if they are actually describing what is true. So the painting process reveals these, when we see ourselves protecting what we like in our painting, holding on, when we want to destroy what we don't like. We see this. So how to work with these forces? Because if we continue in this journey, we need to... Uh, befriend them, like uh, what um, John was saying last night about the alchemy of welcoming what is difficult, what what is unfamiliar. Not only welcoming, but allowing them to be known, really bringing them into the light of our awareness to see them for what they are. Noticing when greed arises in the body, how does it feel? Noticing when anger arises, what is it like to sit here with anger? It doesn't fit our image of what we're supposed to be doing here. But it is completely uh, a common and welcoming, a welcome experience in meditation to be able to sit with these very strong forces of mind. And when we do begin to see them, we are beginning, you could say, a process of detox. It's like we are going into detox because these forces have had such a hold on us and they are so compelling that when we begin to see them and allow ourselves to know them for what they are, we feel like we are withdrawing from a drug. And this takes courage. Trungpa Rinpoche wrote this. He said, the key to practice is not being afraid of who you are. Ultimately, that is the definition of bravery, not being afraid of who you are. And of course, who we are includes our anger, our grief, our fear, our greed, our hatred, all of it. 
not being afraid of that, but rising to the occasion to meet it, to say, all right, let me know you, let me understand you, please, please show yourself to me. On the night of the Buddha's awakening, it is said that he sat with this very clear intention to wake up and that he was visited. All the demons came to tempt him from his commitment to awaken. So the force of greed showed up in the form of dancing girls, uh, food, money, power, everything, anything that could dissuade him came in front of his vision. And he was able, because of his the clarity of his intention and his many years of practice, he was able to sit and say, Ah, my old friend greed. I know you. We have met each other many times before. You cannot fool me anymore. I see you are greed. He could see the greed in his own mind. Same with hatred, the same with delusion. That kind of, it's really the attitude almost of a warrior, of meeting uh, life and our very own minds with this kind of um, willingness to uh, encounter what is difficult, but not be dissuaded from our intention to wake up. Now, I think by now on this retreat, you see that the journey of creativity is not about doing whatever you want. Maybe there's a bit of that at the beginning, but that doesn't last very long. It's uh, more a following of something which arises on its own, comes unbidden, and asks us, to follow it. I'll give you an example from my own painting practice, which was uh, being in the Buddhist world and comfortable in that world. It was no big deal for me to paint Buddhas. I painted many Buddhas. Then one day, it came to me to paint Christ on a cross. And there was something in me that said, Hmm? No, I don't do that. I'm I'm a Buddhist. I don't do Christ on the cross. (laughs) I don't like Christ on the cross. I remember Christ on the cross was kind of repugnant to me as a child. I didn't like looking at it. I thought it was creepy. So there was this attitude. No. But then I thought, well, now, come on, Anna. You've been at this for a while. What's, What's something stirring here? And it was. It was very strong. It wasn't just an idol. It kept, you know, it kept coming in that way. So before you knew it, I was painting lots of crosses with lots of Christs, not just once, but many times. And there was a tremendous amount of energy there. And there was a tremendous feeling of the rightness of that, that there was a deeper stream of my being which was asking me to come into a relationship with that image to know it in a new way. It had nothing to do with what I wanted or with what I didn't want. It just was. It appeared. 
And life does that to us, doesn't it? It appears with things that... How did this... I, I'm, you know, I, I'm just minding my own business and now I've got to relate to this? Life shows us over and over again, you know, in some way how irrelevant our little wants and desires are. I just saw this wonderful movie called um, Step Into Liquid about surfing. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. It's a documentary and it shows um, surfers all over the world and their passion for this wild adventurous sport. And the photography is very beautiful, very outstanding photography. But it's, it, you know, when you're when you're watching a surfer in the middle of the curve of a 30-foot wave, what he likes or dislikes is pretty irrelevant for him at that moment. <laughs> you know, he's got other things on his mind. Or a woman in the midst of child labor, childbirth, is not, her, her particular likes and dislikes at that moment are not really what's up. <laughs> Something else is going on. When you are in the midst of a heat wave, you might like it to be different. You might seek out the air-conditioned room. But if it's hot, it's hot. I know um, when I first traveled to Asia, and particularly India, this was many years ago, I was really struck, I think, for the first time being a very spoiled, white, middle-class American woman who, you know, usually got her way. There I was in India where it, it suddenly occurred to me that, <laughs> that India had nothing to do with satisfying my desires. It could care less whether I got what I wanted or not. And it was quite a revelation to see how sort of narrow a world I had been living in. It was a real eye-opener to see this amazing country that made no sense to my mind. And I've been there many times now. It still makes no sense to my mind. Whenever I go, I go through this agony of, you know, just having to let go of all my ways of how I think it should be and surrendering to how it is, which makes no sense, but which has an aliveness to it which, if you have not been to India, or have been, it is unmistakable. When you step off the plane, you, are, you know you are, you are somewhere else. <laughs> so in the bigger picture, what I'm trying to point to, really, is that our personal likes and dislikes really are not particularly relevant. And that turns out to actually be a good thing. That turns out to be a good thing because it forces us to open, to open to all kinds of um, new understanding, new perspective, new ways of seeing and being with ourselves and the world. Poet Milos wrote, The purpose of poetry 
is to remind us of how difficult it is to remain just one person. For our house is open, there are no keys in the doors, and invisible guests come in and out. We could certainly say the same of painting. When we face the white page or when we sit in meditation facing the void, anything can come and will if you continue. Absolutely anything can come. I heard this Burmese master once, a very high Sayadaw, say, at any moment, any thought may appear in your mind. I mean, it's just infinite potential for what we are opening to when we sit, when we paint. Dogen, Zen Master Dogen said, to forget the self is to open oneself to the entire universe. What forget the self means is not being driven by our personal likes and dislikes. Not being compulsively driven by the liking-disliking mind. Because that is almost a definition of ego. It knows what it likes, it knows what it dislikes, it knows that's all when we are not living from that compulsive place, we are opening ourselves to a whole new world called the entire universe. And it's a wonderful thing. This is what we are asking for because it brings us home. It brings us back to who and what we are. That we are much bigger than we know and that we are much more connected than we sometimes feel or believe. So I'll end with Nisargadatta. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it because you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious circle. Only self-realization can break it. So that is a little bit of the terrain we are traveling here and a little window of what we are, of the opportunity we face when we come to practice together. So thank you for your attention and
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on September 22, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.